You're listening to Tonebenders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Rene Coronado, and with me today, two very special guests. It's Thomas Rex Beverly and George Vlad. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having us on. Hey, Rene. Good to be back here. These are two of the top field recordists in the game right now. You guys really are doing things in the field recording space that's just above and beyond what your average field recordist is doing. You can find them on Twitter. George is at TheGeorgeVlad, and Thomas is at TRexBeverly. And the websites are mindful-audio.com and thomasrexbeverly.com. So if you jump to thomasrexbeverly.com right now, you're going to see a new library out called Alaska Rain. And that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the art and science of recording rain. So Thomas, if you just kick us off a little bit, what's the story of this particular library? So I went on a big... Probably the biggest recording trip I've been on so far. Up in Alaska this summer, I was near all around in Lake Clark National Park, which is a couple hundred miles west of Anchorage. And yeah, it was my first chance to really get out in the middle of nowhere and record a bunch of rain in the forest, largely with a lot of the techniques that I picked up from talking to George and his experiments recording rain in all sorts of rainforests in Africa and South America that he's been doing. And yeah, he just told me all about this Sinella pianissimo double mid-side blimp that you could that you could make waterproof and um, then leave your five thousand dollars worth of mics out in the rain and I was like oh that sounds amazing and very very risky so I proceeded to buy the Sonella blimp and um, the inner cover of the blimp you can coat with this stuff called Nix wax which is a water repellent molecule so it basically causes the water to beat up and roll off and then lets the air through so the sound's getting through and so you spray this stuff on just sprayed it all on in my bathtub in my house and you'd be really really careful to um not miss a spot and then you let this stuff dry for 24 to 48 hours it takes forever to dry but yeah just really really careful to put all that stuff on there and then yeah you take a whole bunch of plane flights and bush plane flights out into the alaskan wilderness and then i hope that george was right and then i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> put this put yeah the first night i put my gear out in the rain it was quite nerve-wracking because i didn't i have redundancy in a lot of my gear but not in the sennheiser mics that i'm using so but yeah i left it out there and yeah some pretty good rain two or three hours of rain that first night and then made some stupid mistakes like leaving the dry bag right next to the tripod and ended up having three hours of rain on a dry bag and so you, you learn those mistakes very quickly but um yeah, it was it's it's kind of a game changer to have this this blimp that you can leave out in the rain. And so there's a lot of other tips that go along with that, but George taught me about this Sonella blimp and that's kind of the foundation of being able to record in the rain and not having to have a man-made structure recording the sound of that instead of the rain. So, George, did you want to jump in on anything about the Sonella blimp? I think Thomas has covered it pretty thoroughly. It's, yeah, it's a thing of beauty. When I when I heard of it from my friend Dan Hendricks, it was, I couldn't believe it. I said, well, it's some sort of magic just because you can really leave rigs, rigs out overnight in the rainforest and there's like 100% humidity, tropical rainstorms. Uh, of course, there's wildlife as well, which is a different topic. 
But, you know, humidity, I think, was my biggest enemy up to that point. And I just couldn't get any good recordings of rain without hearing rain on roofs or, you know, the reflections from nearby walls or whatever have you over there. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a really good addition to my toolbox and to my, my things that I use when, I, when I'm outfield recording. So, Thomas, was there anything else kind of in particular that precipitated the destination of Alaska? I mean, there's rain everywhere. <laughs> well, I've been traveling a lot around in North America the last few years, and just Alaska had been been big on my list, and had just been planning this trip for a while, and didn't necessarily know that I was going to be getting rain, but that time of year, you're likely to get a lot of light rain, and then I was actually able to get some some thunder up there, too, which is pretty rare that time of year, but... Yeah, the waterproofing was more the ability to leave the mic out in the woods for 18 hours a day. And so that was more the strategy was being able to do that. And then if I could get some rain, that was great. But the the trip was about recording all sorts of ambiences in the ecosystem and all sorts of things like that. So the rain, I was happy to get it when I did. But the waterproofing was more the ability to be able to leave the mic out by itself. Because a lot of the recording I had done before had been me sitting there and recording and listening because I was always worried about thunderstorms. So. so it was just kind of a bucket list trip. Oh yeah, for sure. So so you had the blimp. Let's, let's talk about this blimp. So Sinella is pretty much top of the line with regards to wind protection and it's priced accordingly. Because of the price point, there's only a handful of folks that I really know that, that are out there running that Sinella blimp. That's high on my gear acquisition list as well. So, George, how long have you had yours, and what was your entrance into that? So, I got mine just before I left for South Africa, about three years ago. I, as I said earlier, I think the first time I heard about it was when I talked to Dan Hendricks. He was recording all kinds of crazy stuff just by leaving rigs out, and I just couldn't trust that it would not rain, or even, you know, even if it doesn't rain in tropical forests, you get a lot of humidity that just condenses over microphones, and when you have... really expensive gear you're really careful not to have them break or even ruin the recordings you know because the Sennheiser mic are pretty good at dealing with humidity and yeah I heard about it from Dan I had a chat with him and then uh, bought my own I think I received it just one day before leaving <laughs> it was really last minute didn't even get a chance to test it but I was really happy with shock protection wind protection and of course being able to render it waterproof so that was really an eye-opener for me. And when I started to do that, I mean, sky was the limit. I got even too, let's say, brave with leaving it in certain places. Hmm. And then, of course, I, I also like to leave camera traps out to, to see what kind of wildlife goes close to the microphones. And I managed to get elephants getting really close to, to my rigs, you know, sniffing them, making weird noise, weird calls, and then baboons bumping into my rigs. They didn't really care for it. I don't think... It didn't oh. smell like food or anything, and they're usually looking for food. And I've had bears as well in Transylvania, coming close to my rigs, playing with them, biting into the dry bags. That was pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, because you think about it right now, there's no more humidity problems. I can leave my rig out anywhere. And then you, you bump into issues with wildlife. And I think Tom has had uh, grizzly bears come close to, their, to his rigs, right, Tom? Yeah, grizzly bears and, and moose definitely check nice. it out. Another side note with the Sinella blimp is I think you have the, the Kelly rain cover that goes on it too. So it has this, you have the inner cover that you cover with the next wax and then 
there's a the Kelly Rain covers this honeycomb kind of plastic honeycomb that you put over top of that and that will disperse the drops as they hit the blimp so you won't get that thunking sound if anything's are anything is dripping on there so you have the inner kind of neoprene kind of cover and then the honeycombed Sonella Kelly rain cover over top of that so that's really good for rain it's not there's a separate furry cover that Sonella has that's obviously better for wind but the honeycomb is good for the rain and so most of the time when I when I leave it out if there's any chance of rain I just put the honeycomb cover on it otherwise the furry cover will get soaked and then it tends to dampen the sound more but yeah the honeycomb cover is doubles as very good wildlife protection I found because I had some yeah, I had a lot of really curious grizzly bears, and I'm I'm very careful not to get food smells or anything on the limp or the gear, but man, I, I thought they would just come check it out, but I had definitely two grizzly bears, got a whole bunch of bear, and then definitely a moose came by too, but each time the bear was there, like they they <laughs> they they sniffed it, they licked it, they they bumped it, they pawed at the dry bag for like full 20 minutes or so each time and it was they were just very very curious and so well they can smell you on it right I mean, uh, a bear yeah. can track better than a bloodhound, like even through water. Yeah, yeah. they just, they found me. So I, I had set up next to some game trails trying to get wildlife going by. And I had set up a little bit too close to the game trails is what it turned out. And so I got some really, really curious animals, but there was definitely a moose. But that, um, the Kelly rain cover is great because when they sort of gum on the mic and lick it and stuff, they're not going to be able to get as good a hold of it as they would if the furry cover was on there. And there was, there was definitely like a moose jaw sized bite print in the Kelly, Kelly rain cover. <laughs> so it's tough and it, it survived. Can you describe that rain cover for me? I mean, it's, it's obviously honeycomb, but like, how thick is it? Like how much does it protrude? It's about an inch thick. Would you say George? Is that yeah, about right? Yeah. Just a bit more than an inch. But yeah. see, this is a, this is a thing that I don't really agree with you. I don't really like it. I hmm. used to have it on all the time unless I needed the, the windshield wind protection. The problem with it, so first of all, I don't think it protects against rain. Only very soft drizzle. Anything that's just a bit, just like, just drops, you'll still hear the low frequency thump. Hmm. And while that, in certain settings, it can make for interesting sounds, I find that it usually breaks the, the suspension of the listener. So it's just, I don't really like it. I don't use it as much anymore. Now, as uh, I've uh, described in a video on YouTube, I prefer to build structures out of locally available material, oh, like yeah. wood and leaves, twigs, anything that sounds like the environment. And then there's no more need for the, for the Kelly rain cover. And also a second reason for not liking it is that insects seem to really like it. They come close and then they get entangled in the, in the foamy material. Hmm. And they just can't get out anymore and they end up like flapping like crazy and you get all this low frequency rumble like huh no that's interesting some of my recordings from gabon last year from the rainforest are like 10 hours of uh, you know, moths and, and butterflies and other insects trying to escape the Kelly. 
Mm. So I ended up spraying it with insect repellent with DEET a few times, and I find that it's sort of, it's effective, but still I prefer to spend an hour, build a structure on the ground, leave my rig there. You know, it's there's other considerations as well, but to, to make a story short, it's just, it's much more effective to have something like a sort of a roof, something over the rig that protects from rain and, you know, it makes for better recordings overall. And sure. for those of us who haven't seen it, like how wide are the honeycomb openings on the thing? Are they like a millimeter, centimeter? How big are they? They're like a few millimeters. Yeah, like smaller than a raindrop. A little smaller than a raindrop, so it's not going to go through. Yeah. But um, no, that George, that's a really good point about the insects because I've only used it in places where there was barely any insects. So the insects were not a problem to me at all when I was using the Kelly rain cover, but that's that's a really good thing to know about because that can sounds like it can definitely ruin ruin recordings. The other element is the Nix wax. So is that something that is, I mean, that's something that can be applied to any wind protection, is that correct? No. How does that work? Explain that to me. So Nix wax is basically used for footwear, for shoes. You can render them waterproof. I think you can use it on, on textiles as well. The problem with it is you have to have a material that works well with Nix wax. They have different types. Some that work with leather, some that work with just generic, you know, man-made textiles. And this material that uh, the cover of the Sinella blimp is made of is designed so it works well with Nick wax. So it keeps water from going in while also allowing for frequencies to, to get to the microphone. So it doesn't really cut on the high frequencies as you would expect. And you're talking about the non-furry cloth cover that goes over the outside of the plastic. Yes. Yeah, you don't put it on the furry cover. It's going to clog it and make it much worse for use afterwards. So it's just the the very thin material that's elastic that you can kind of stretch over your blimp, over mm-hmm. the Snella blimp. I think they have a, the photos on their website and all the instructions if the listeners are interested in finding out. Yeah, and they send very detailed instructions on how to apply it when you buy the blimp too. So if you had a Rycote or a Road or something and you just turned the fuzzy inside out, it still wouldn't be a good idea to put that wax on the inside I, of a fuzzy. I would not recommend that. No. no, I don't think so. I haven't tried it. It's like it's a good idea to kill a, a fuzzy, but <laughs> uh, I, I have doubts that it works. Otherwise, Rycote or Road would recommend doing that, right? Sure. And the main reason is because of the type of material that's used to hold the fuzzy together yes. in the other brands. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So as you're going out and you're, and you're recording and you're anticipating rain, let's start with you, George. Kind of talk to me about what your gear setup is. Is you're just going to put something and drop it for you know, 12, 18 hours at a time? Sometimes even more than that. I just got the Sony PCM-D10, and that specific recorder can go for 51 hours on four AA batteries. But it also takes a USB-C power, so it can go for weeks probably. So I like to use that as a sort of a sound camera trap, if it makes sense. I live it in certain places for two or three days at a time. And I pair that with a couple of micro OC microphones from LOM. Those are really low self noise. They go up in frequencies up to about 70K. They're really good for the price. It's incredible. They cost less than 100 euros. So that's one of the rigs that I leave out. And I put the recorder in a dry bag, tie it to a tree with zip ties, and just leave it there. And I've got really good recordings in Ethiopia on my last trip over there, on my recent trip of various types of monkeys calling in like alarm calls at night, insects, frogs, birds. And it's a really easy to to lug around rig. If I don't have enough room, or if I have to hike for like 20 miles in a day, 
I will pick up two of these small rigs instead of the big rig. But if I can drive, or if there's a, like only a short hike to the place I want to record, I will bring my main rig, which is the Sennheiser double midside, equally as uh, like Tom has. And I will leave that, the recorder bag, in a big dry bag. As Tom mentioned earlier, I try to hide it or to conceal it under foliage, so the rain hitting it doesn't make a different sound from everything else. And then I have a Manfrotto tripod, my blimp on it, and I leave that, try to conceal it from view, even if uh, I know there's no, no chance of humans being in the area or wildlife going close to it. It's always useful to not have it really, to be really obvious. And yeah, I leave it out for usually 28 to 22 hours. That's the most I can get out of two Hawkwoods batteries and the internal, the 6AA battery that go into the 633 recorder. Nice. Mm. Thomas, what about you? It's kind of a, a similar starting point, I guess. I was mostly recording with a Mixpre 6 with a, um, I think it's a 90, 96 watt hour USB-C battery. And so that would get me about... 18 hours for three channels, a double mid side at 192. That would get me about 18 hours, depending on the temperature. So I'd get that rig out. I'd, I'd scout locations, similar things with what George does. I'll scout locations. I'll wander around in the woods a lot, scouting places that sound good. That's usually a lot of hiking and a lot of doing short little calls in the woods that'll create some form of echo so that I can see how the sound naturally funnels in the woods because it's usually not super obvious if you're in really dense forest and so you do quick little calls and you see how things echo around and you decide how to orient your mics and then you know how if the if a storm comes through and there's going to be thunder you know how the the thunder is going to ripple down the valley in that direction because that's the natural acoustic terrain of that and then i'll find a spot i like i will <laughs> if i'm ever in places where there's lots of bugs i will definitely not use the kelly rain cover but in places where there are not very many bugs. I actually have not had the bug issue. And so it's kind of a trade-off with me where if I just had the inner cover of the Sonella on there, I would be very concerned about an animal coming by and gumming that or knocking it over. And then if the tripod is knocked over, then I'm concerned about the mic sitting in water because the Nix wax is not going to stop water getting through it if it's sitting in a puddle or something. So Basically, I'm trying to find a spot that instead of building a natural foliage canopy like George is doing, definitely going to start doing that soon. But most of the rain I was recording was in a deciduous forest. And so I was able to find places that actually just had low lying deciduous branches. And so that functioned as a natural foliage canopy. And so I would find spots like that and then that would catch almost all of the rain. So there wasn't any thunking on the blimp. I had the Kelly rain cover on top of that to catch and disperse any drips that might come through. And then I always make sure that, similar to what George is saying, I haven't usually zip tied the dry bag to things, but I do try to put it in a place where an animal can't step on it. And so that's usually underneath something if possible. It's covered by foliage, it's inside of a hollow log or something where, because I found that the bear, like a grizzly bear, is still going to be able to smell it even if they. I try to cover it up. So I found that it was better if they could actually just come up to it and smell it, but then you're less likely to have them step on it because it's like inside a hollow log where they can sniff it, but then they're not going to step on it and actually break it. So I would get that set up. And then I always try to find a spot to leave the tripod that's on high ground because oftentimes I am concerned about the wind blowing the tripod over 
or having an animal come by because that happened mostly multiple times with the grizzly bears that they actually knocked the tripod over after they were sniffing it for a while so i want to be setting the tripod in a spot where there's high ground so that if the tripod does get knocked over the blimp is never going to be sitting in a place where there was a puddle of groundwater that then is in my mics right so if it's especially in alaska but i think about that a lot too if i'm in some place like in west texas in the desert where there might be flash flood kind of conditions or something where you'll get water coming through and it never even actually rained there it might have rained two miles away and then the water comes through but the other thing that i do so i make sure the tripod's on high ground within the location and then i use these tent stakes which are pretty good depends on the environment but in alaska i actually needed longer ones because there's this mossy ground and you have to be able to get through it but you can start with like six inch tent stakes and i use those to stake down the tripod corners and so i push those into the ground and it stakes the tripod to the ground much more solidly so if you can get 12 inch ones that's even better so then you can get a really solid structure for the tripod by having those tripod bases stuck into the ground and i found that's great because then i'm not concerned about wind blowing it over or an animal i mean a grizzly bear is still going to knock it over if they're messing with it but they're a lot less likely to knock the tripod over and then accidentally step on it or something so i found the tent stakes to be very effective well, how far off the ground do you like for your mics to be? I tend to have it um, three, four, five, six feet at the max, depending on how solidly I can stake the tripod corners in. Mm-hmm. It also just depends on the environment that I'm in, whether or not that extra two or three feet is going to help the sound. So I'll scout the location and see what sounds really good beforehand. and. If an extra three feet of height is not going to make much difference in the sound, I'm usually conservative in keeping the blimp lower so that if things are going to happen, if the blimp does get knocked over, it's not it's going to be less chance of, of breaking it. So, Yeah, same for me. I think my tripod can go about three feet at the shortest. So it's probably as low as I can get, unless there's like tree trunks blocking sound or I specifically want to record from a, like from six feet or so. I don't really tend to worry about the tripod being knocked over that much. I think it's pretty stable because I have the 5001B Nano and it can spread apart pretty widely, so it's quite stable. I've never had it fall over, I think. Hmm. So I have uh, one of these nifty cable ties, you know, that you use for like securing bikes and stuff and made of metal. So I will run that through the blimp, like the base of the blimp and through the tripod and through the recorder bag as well, and tie that with zip ties to a nearby log or something, just in case there's like curious monkeys or other wildlife that wants to take the stuff and run with it. <laughs> and even wow. if something would break, you know, I can still find it and I want it when I get back there. Ideally, I don't know. It's never happened so far. Knock on wood, it, probably, it hopefully will never happen. Well, and one other height consideration, I guess, George, in your technique is when you're dealing with rain, you're building a little shelter, right? So I've seen point. the YouTube videos that you've put up and your shelters, they look like they're about, I don't know, two, three feet high. Can you kind of talk about the genesis of that idea and what purpose it serves? So I think there's a blog post by Gordon Hampton talking about how he records rain. And he went through a few different materials. I think it was uh, hog's hair, which I, I haven't been able to find here in the UK or in Europe. So I've tried using a whole lot of different solutions for blocking the, the sound of raindrops hitting the blimp. And this goes back further than uh, having the Sennel, actually. I, was, I tried with Omni mics, I tried with record bins, and it's always the same problem. When you get big, or actually any size raindrops, you will hear the thump 
as the as they hit the blimp. And it's really annoying. I, I will never keep or use any of those recordings anymore. So first of all, I thought about using like a chair structure, you know, just getting a chair or a table or something, taking out in the woods. I even logged a, a small table into the forest back in Romania five or six years ago. And I really probably looked weird to the passersby, but I didn't care. I just wanted to get the good, good recordings. The problem with that was it created a sort of a resonance. So you get the, the wood and some echoes underneath it. Mm. And when rain hit the table legs sideways, you'd get weird sounds. So that was uh, soon scrapped. So I just ended up, I had a machete. I really liked going out with machete and just cutting stuff randomly and bits of wood and putting them together. And it's sort of by itself, it ended up being sort of a process where I got the platform idea. And that seems to work the best because what do you want to record when you record rain? You want the sound of raindrops hitting the natural materials that you have to, uh, around you, right? So that the simplest way to do that is build some sort of platform, a roof over the microphones. Have you found that there's an ideal height of the platform above the mic so that you don't get a proximity sort of sound? So the best compromise, because there's several parameters you have to think about. There's the, you don't want it to sound too boxy or anything. The risk is low just because I never make it like really technically correct or very even or anything. It just, it's very rough, you know, it's a very rough structure. It's solid, but it looks it's not measured or anything. It's just as I like, like I feel like I, I can do it. Or sometimes, you know, depending on how you can find the, the materials around you. There's never weird resonance or phasing issues or problems. Just because the sound doesn't bounce around too much, there's no parallel structures or walls or anything. And it's you have to keep in mind it's twigs and leaves. So there's all protruding things. So I have never found, even like with the lowest one that I've tried, I've tried with two small omni mics and I think it was maybe one foot off the ground, two feet off the ground. And it was still usable, it still sounded good. It sounded nice and open. So then if you go too far, I tried, I think the, the highest one I built was maybe five feet, four and a half feet. And the problem with that is when it, there's a bit of wind, you will get some, unless the roof is really wide and the surface is, is big, you will get some of the rain, you know, coming from, uh, from the sides. And that's when the recordings kind of don't work anymore. So I think three feet is probably ideal, maybe four feet if you can do that. It's already a problem with uh, available materials. If you have nice twigs, you know, with forked ends, you can do that, of course. But it also attracts attention if it's too big from wildlife passes by. You have to keep in mind there's in certain locations, there's people collecting all kinds of stuff from the forest, like, you know, gathering mushrooms and berries and crops and whatever. Ideally, you want to build it somewhere that's sheltered from view and from wildlife. And also, it doesn't need to attract attention to itself. Even if you're in Alaska, as you said, it's always a compromise between these ideas, these parameters. Have you gotten it to work in an open area where you kind of cover the top with like the sod of grass or something? Have you tried that? Does that work at all? The only time I tried that, the rain failed to arrive. Oh. That would be disappointing. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's in your video. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That was really nice, and there, was, there would have been a good test, but the rain just hovered in the distance and then uh, went away. So I, I can't tell. I'm not sure if that works or not or how what the results would be. I'll definitely try this when I get a chance, but I'm not sure. How much time do you allot to build the shelter? I think one hour tops. It's not worth spending more than one hour trying to do it. I usually look around to see if there's enough material. So when my last trip to Ethiopia, I spent 
probably a bit more than an hour with my friend Amanda trying to build a similar structure. The problem is all the available leaves, they were spiny. So I got spines and, uh, and thorns in my hands a couple of times before I learned which ones to use. And yeah, it was a bit of a learning curve over there because you have to learn about the local vegetation as well. It's not that easy to just pick up stinking nettles and put them on your, on your rig. But apart from that, yeah, I think about an hour is enough. I don't want to spend more than that. Unless it's like a really good location where I will be recording for several days, you know, maybe like in the Amazon or in the Congo rainforest. Otherwise, probably not worth it. Have you experimented with anything that you could bring with you that's artificial, but it does the same thing, like maybe some long grass artificial astroturf? Well, that's already a different thing from what you have around you, right? Unless you are surrounded by astroturf. <laughs> and that will sound different. Even if it's really subtle, you will hear the difference. Mm-hmm. And I don't have enough room in my, in my luggage for astroturf. <laughs> Who has that? <laughs> I already have like a bunch of stuff that I have to leave, like underwear and you know, soap and stuff. So yeah, I'll never think... I always try to reduce whatever I carry with me instead of bringing more stuff. And usually in the types of areas and the locations that I find myself in, there will be plenty of material to work with. So, Thomas, when your library came out, you hit the internet with a whole list of tips on how to record rain. I got the list in front of me. That hit me and I was just, you know, recording rain is just one of the most difficult things in the world to do well. And so this is the centerpiece of this conversation here because I saw it and I was like, oh my God, we have to talk about this. So, number one that you put up there, use microphones known to perform well in high humidity, which is basically you're just saying don't bring your sheps. Yeah. Well, I only have Sennheiser, so I don't even have a choice, but... The Sennheiser MKH 8040s and MKH 30 that I use, they haven't failed me yet, so they're pretty great mics and humidity, so. Um, yeah, they really are. All, all the Sennheiser MKH line, even from way back, they're just so bulletproof in humidity. They're so good. And Sheps are notorious for just getting a little crackly when it gets a little humid. Are there any other microphone brands or models that are tripwires with regards to humidity that you guys are aware of? The DPA 4060s that I have, do really well. I mean, I've, I've, I think in one of their promo videos, they like take it underwater and it still works or something. So I think that's just the, the HD, the heavy duty version of the 4060s. The regular right. ones, they would probably die in, if you put them in water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. And I, I have the HD versions of those. So uh, the Countryman B6 is waterproof. So those could even go all the way out. Are there any other like trouble mics, any problem mics that we're aware of anyway? When I went to Gabon last year, my friend Stain, he had. I think Mic Booster, they make uh, clipping mics. There we go. So he had a pair of clipping mics that died after a night out in the rainstorm. Mm. I love long mics. Oh, yeah. It's a manufacturer, I think, yeah, he's based in Europe. And they make really cost-efficient microphones. Uh, I love their Omnis, the micro OCs and the micro OC Pros. I've had mine out in rainstorms a whole lot of times, and they work well. One, actually, a pair of them died for my friend Amanda in Ethiopia, but I'm not sure what caused that, because mine usually don't have any problems with being out in the, in the rain. I do use a Bubble B wind protection, which is somewhat treated to protect against moisture as well. You cannot dip them in water, but if you can if you leave them out in the rain, it works pretty well. But yeah, my experience with clippy mics is that they will die after being left out in the rain. Mm. They were very sad looking as well, with the, <laughs> with the furries hanging down, yeah. So point number two that you put out there, Thomas, was about your cableage. So you need cables that can survive that kind of moisture. So in your experience, what was working well? George, maybe you want to take that one because I, I learned that straight from you. So so I, was, I recently found out about 
these nutric cables that are rated for humidity, they're called HD. It's just basically for heavier duty version of their already good enough connectors and cables. So I use that for my blimp. I also, when it's really humid, I use electrical tape around the connectors so that there's no chance of humidity getting in there. And that's about it. Yeah, it's just good cabling. I mean, I've had troubles with cheap cables, cheap XLR cables and connectors, cheap DIN cables in the past, and I don't go for the cheapest ones anymore. I find that Van Damme and Nutri connectors are really good cables and haven't had any problems with humidity so far. Yeah, the one thing I'd add to that, so those Nutric XHD series ones, I think are the waterproof ones that you yeah. had me use. The one thing, if you're using a double mid-side rig, the XHD, they don't actually make a seven pin version of that cable, but the solution was I had Gotham Sound. They do make a five pin exterior of it. And then, so you just have to get them to buy the seven pin interior and the five pin exterior, and, and then they'll just switch out the inside and outsides and then you have a waterproof seven pin connector but you got to get that custom made if you're trying to get a seven pin xlr cable because they don't actually make that connector but you can get somebody to custom switch those out if that makes sense and something you're talking about is something that i'm, I'm a big fan of which is multi-pin cables to do the run from the recorder to the blimp it's more effort to do it on the front end but man it just makes your life so much easier when you're out there in the world to just have a single kind of little mini snake coming off your blimp and coming off your recorder and one good long five or seven pin connector cable in between that just, you don't have to think about it. It's just there and it just works. And sometimes it costs more money. You know, I've, I've made my own and usually I'm just going five pin, but that setup really changed my life when I really started working that way. Yeah, I run a seven pin XLR into... 7-pin XLR snake that splits into three XLRs, and I love that because then you got the waterproof connector at the blimp, just one cable running, and then all three of those XLR cables are all inside the dry bag. And I really like having 65-liter dry bags because it has a really, it's overly large for what I need, but I actually like having the extra space because I need, oftentimes I'm going out and trying to change the battery in the SD card while it's still raining. And so I like having the wide mouth of the dry bag to be able to kind of shelter from that. And then I also tend to keep a large umbrella with me and then I can cover myself up with that and then make myself a little cover with the umbrella and be able to switch out the batteries and SD cards without any water getting in the dry bag while I'm out. And the specific one that you're referencing is the Sea to Summit 65 liter dry bag. Yeah, I like those. I mean, there's various thicknesses of the dry bags. That's a, a heavy duty. That's good if animals check it out too, because you can get good point. You can get lighter weight, thinner ones, but I tend to like the heavier duty ones. So, George, what do you use? Yeah, same for me. I use the the AquaQuest dry bags, and the big ones are ideal because they allow for you to coil the the top with the with the cables as well. When you oh yeah, them. that's exactly what I do too. So and you do it up. Yeah. What kind of investment is a dry bag? Uh, they're like fifty bucks for a sixty-five yeah. liter. Six, yeah. uh, 50, 60, 75 bucks, something like that. Yeah. I have smaller ones as well just for like the small rigs. And those are really useful for valuables in as well. You know, I have maybe 20 or 30 on a trip because they're, they're really valuable in the rainforest. Wow. That's a lot of dry bags. Did you say, 30, did you say, did you say 20, 20 dry bags? Wow. Well, the small ones, I'm talking about the, like maybe <laughs> like uh, less than 20, 30 centimeters, less than a foot. Uh, just okay. because they're, got it, got it. you know, sometimes, for example, in the, in the Amazon earlier this year, after six days, we ran out of dry underwear and dry clothes. 
So every morning we had to put on <laughs> wet clothing. Yeah, and that was probably the worst moment in the day. After you put it on, it's fine. You know, for after half an hour, you're all right. But the moment you put it on, it's not really that enjoyable. <laughs> so that's where extra underwear and extra dry bags will help. <laughs> uh, next step is cover everything with local foliage, which is something we discussed. And the main reason is to keep it out of sight from people and animals that might find it interesting that couldn't necessarily smell it. How much time do you guys allot for that? Is that something that's just quick, just find a branch and chuck it on top? Or do you spend more time? Is it more elaborate than that? Tom? I spend more time placing the tripod, and then I tend to find the best spot that I can get the dry bag with the length of cable. Sometimes I only have a 25-foot cable, so that limits where I can put it. Yeah, definitely less than 30 minutes on the dry bag. Just try to find a spot where you're not going to hear the rain on the dry bag, cover it with foliage, get it somewhere the people aren't going to see it and animals aren't going to step on it. And yeah, just be aware of water drainage when you're trying to place it somewhere as well, because you want to be able to come back and not be in the middle of a mud pit and be able to change your batteries and SD cards out and stuff. So whenever I think about a place to to drop my rig, first of all, of course, it's, it's important to hear and to listen. But of course, I also look for places where I can conceal the rigs and the dry bag and then ideally cover it with something, at least foliage, if not more like a branch or something. But usually it's not my first concern. It's mostly listening to the place and finding a spot where it really sounds good. For sure. Can you talk about that? How much time do you spend listening before you actually start setting up a rig? Well, so my longest recce was 11 days in Norway. I went to Norway to record wildlife in nature and I didn't record anything. I just spent 11 days listening for good places, never found one. But it was a good, uh, good experience overall. I think I, I really enjoyed it. It was a meditation for me going out, listening, finding that there's distant boats or there's distant streams everywhere or there's... It's a beautiful country, but it was really bad for recording. That was the, the huh. gist of it in the end. But normally, I will do a recce beforehand where I will go out without any recording gear just for listening, maybe with a small camera in my hand. And I try to mark a few places in my mind or write them down so that I come back and do a recording afterwards. It may take uh, an afternoon or a few days I may be recording just like in a random place on the first day with a small rig to see what I can find in that place, right? To listen back and to see if there are certain types of wildlife. But with my main rig, I don't think it's worth recording somewhere where there's a high chance of traffic happening nearby or aircraft noise or people or whatever, unless I'm focusing on that. I guess it varies, but in the end, it's it's a really important part of the work that I do. Thomas, what about you? Yeah, similar strategy with the scouting. Usually I'll place the rig somewhere that I've already scouted, it'll be recording. At least on this last trip, I'll oftentimes on my trips, I'll spend the afternoons scouting new locations. And usually I don't have any gear with me. I'm just trying to move fast, listen, hiking through, doing little calls to see what the echoes are like in the space, looking for natural features, whether that's trying to find little lakes, whether that's a natural bowl with with a rock outcrop that's going to make something interesting, whether that's a squeaky branch, whether I look for, I spend a lot of time looking for squeaky branches because they, they add a lot of wonderful character to the, to the ambience. And then I have a little Garmin InReach Mini, which is just like a, it's a texting version of a satellite phone, but you can also do a little mapping on that. And so I drop little GPS waypoints when I find something cool so I can get back to it. But yeah, if I was going to average it, it's it's at least an hour scouting each location, several hours probably trying to find a new one that sounds really good. And then I always spend time just listening without any gear. And then I also, 
once I get the rig there, usually takes me 30 minutes to an hour to get the rig situated in a way that I like and sounds good and make sure all the settings are correct. And so I guess it's first scouting, listening, then it's listening when I get back to the location, then it's setting up the rig, then it's listening to the rig with the gain cranked up really high just to make sure that there's nothing kind of in the peripheral range of my hearing that I'm not necessarily hearing, especially usually that's a really low generator hum because that's the, the bane of my existence. You, you'll get <laughs> off the electrical grid, but then you're fighting the, fighting the, the generator hums. So I always like to crank the gain up to see if there's something like that too. It's a lot of time listening. And then depending on the, the location, it actually wasn't safe for me to sit and listen as much because there's so many grizzly bears around when I was up there in early summer, they'd all just woken up. And so usually if I'm going to record at a place, I like to just sit and listen. And sometimes I really enjoy just turning on the mics and cranking it up and listening and just not even pressing record. And I like to just listen. And so, I don't know, that's, that's always a kind of special moment for me when I can, when I can just listen and then I'm choosing not to record because I'm just experiencing it. I always love that moment. And then, yeah, it just depends. So I'll definitely spend 15 to 30 minutes just listening at that location. But if I'm in bear country, I have to periodically stop and do some bear calls and make noise so that the bear's not sneaking up on me or something. And then that affects the wildlife. So there's not as much listening I can do depending on the wildlife that's around. But that's my process in general. You ever miss anything gorgeous because you're not rolling? Um, I feel like I would kick myself. I've missed a flock of African gray parrots, and they sound beautiful. And I really wanted to get the sound of the flock moving through the forest. And I was there just setting up my rig. I stopped for a bit. I listened. I knew I, I wouldn't get my rig just up and running in enough time. So I just stopped and listened, and it was beautiful. It was a really special moment. And I was there with the, with our rangers and, and guys and everyone. So even if I was recording, it would have been a lot of movement and people talking. And hmm. But... And it was really special as well. So yeah, in the end, I didn't I didn't mind it that much. I got a few African grey parrot calls afterwards. Not as many, not a flock, but it's a memory that will stay with me for a long time. Yeah, your head's in a different space when the red light's not on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Even if the mics are up, it's it's a different place for sure. When possible, I like to actually hike with everything hooked up. I'll have a chest rig of the recorder and then the blimp and the cableage all connected and when possible I like to hike like that but that's not always practical so I've done some of that if I'm hiking on well-established trails and stuff sometimes I'll have the rig all set up and ready to go and on and actually recording while I'm walking and stuff and then that's worked out pretty great sometimes and then sometimes it's not practical I was doing that a bunch when I was hiking around in the Pacific Northwest trying to get elk bugling and I kept hearing it when I was <laughs> I would be hiking and then I kept hearing this fantastic bugling off in the distance in this old growth forest and then I would miss it. And so I started hiking with the blimp hooked up and was able to get them sometimes, but it's fun to just listen sometimes. So you're in Alaska, you got your rig up, it's rained, you're back to it and you're taking it all down. Outside of the fact that everything survived, was anything surprising at all? One of the nice things in Alaska, at least in that ecosystem, a lot of the birds stopped singing in the rain but then there's this one bird it's called a swainson's thrush that makes this fantastic rising melodic call and it's really dense and rich 
But it was funny because you would everything else would get quiet, and then you'd get this one Swainson's thrush that just loved singing in the rain. And so I've got these really pretty recordings of like a million raindrops hitting these deciduous trees and mostly cottonwood and birch trees, and then this Swainson's thrush that's just singing in the rain. I really loved those those recordings. Well, how many hours did you pull back? Once you dump all the files, like how much actual recording did you do? Mm, that was a 14-day trip. So I was there for 14 days, minus the travel on front and the back. Probably about 150 hours or so. It's a ton of stuff. Wow. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's. So what's the process for combing through that? How do you kind of get to the interesting parts quickly? Um, it's mostly just offloading the files and getting them backed up to two or three different places. And that takes quite a while with, I'm still using hard drives. So you mostly use these two terabyte hard drives. And so that takes a while. And then most of it's just scanning through things in in RX and seeing what interesting stuff happened. And then I throw a lot of text markers in and mark those locations. And sometimes I'll actually, if there's long stretches of an airplane or something that came through, I'll just go ahead and delete that right at the beginning, but it's mostly just scanning through things in RX and you you start to recognize the bird species or something interesting that happened or (laughs) some bird that's super close to the mic and clipping things out or the grizzly bear sniffing your mics for 20 minutes. But yeah, it's mostly just looking at the spectrum because it's totally impractical to listen to 150 hours worth of stuff. So, George, what's your process? I was more or less the same, but I try to listen to most of my recordings. I will look at the spectrogram and drop markers in Reaper and then go back to it. But I like to, for me it's like music, and there's a lot of times when I don't do audio work in my studio, so just play a long recording, and I will have a, I will find sometimes stuff that's not immediately apparent on a spectrogram, and I'll drop a marker in there, go back to it sometimes, and I'll export it and listen to it again. But yeah, sometimes it gets out of hand, you know. When I, I go back from Gabon last year after a month with 1.4 terabytes <laughs> of data, that included videos and photos, but not too many. Mostly it was, it was recordings. Okay. And I still haven't listened to all the overnight. I think the part after sunset and just uh, just to pre-dawn, unless there, was, there were big mammals around, it's mostly crickets, it's mostly cicadas and frogs. And that can become a bit boring to listen to after maybe the hundredth hour <laughs> or so. <laughs> But yeah, it's mostly that, it's mostly that listening to everything, and then of course, if I work on a specific library, for example, the, the African Jungle Library, I'll try to portray this place at various times of day and night, uh, during rain, during wind, during calm periods, and then just cover every possible situation that you can think of. You know, so you can recreate that setting in an ideal way, right? So that's if I have a lot of dawn choruses, I'll not look for dawn choruses anymore mm-hmm. until I'm, I'm done with that library. I'll definitely look, uh, look through all of the recordings, but if I'm working on a specific li- uh, library, I'll check a certain items on a list until I have everything, like a good amount of dawn choruses, a good amount of pre-dawn, a good amount of overnight calm ambience, enough mammal calls if I can get any nearby. And that's my train of thought. Do you guys try and bring something to completion before you go out and record again, or do you have multiple things going on simultaneously? Oh, no. <laughs> George laughed. <laughs> yeah. I have like maybe 10 different projects at the moment that I still work on. 
And I'm also updating my existing libraries all the time. So I went back to Ethiopia recently and I will update my African Cloud Forest library with more recordings of mammals and things that I didn't get last year when I was there. I think sound effects libraries are not a product anymore. They're becoming a service, like a live project, live product that you continuously can add to, especially in my case where I like to go out and record every two months if possible. I, I just get crazy being indoors for too long. That's something Frank Bree really innovated. I think he was one of the first to start updating libraries to people that had purchased them in the past. Absolutely. Frank actually gave me this idea when I saw him updating his helicopter libraries, the fire ones, the ice one. He just like added content there because he was happy to record some more. And I think that says a lot about the way you think about the people who purchase your, your work. Yeah, for sure. What I found when I do long recordings, and I, I don't approach anything what you guys do with regards to just the quantity of recording that you do, but I find that if I don't record it quickly, I start to lose the memory of it, and I start to have problems editing mm -hmm. it if I let it sit on the shelf for too long. I'm like that a little bit. Really? Oh, yeah, hmm. for sure. But um, that I also might it's... be my day job is bending and twisting all kinds of other sounds as well, and so my mind gets occupied with other things besides you know the last recording I did. That makes sense, actually, but... Because I also do game audio in my uh, normal day-to-day -day work. So I get a good amount of video whenever I'm out. Mm -hmm. So that really helps get me back in the, mi in the mindset that I was when I was recording that. And it's also, for me, it's not just doing the recording or the photography or the video shooting. It's a really complete experience of being somewhere and experiencing that place. So I sometimes make notes. I sometimes get video, get photos. And it's really easy for me to go back into that mindset if, let's say, if I have to spend a day editing more sounds for a specific location, I'll start by looking at the videos and remember what it felt like to be there and maybe talk to someone that I was with in that location. So I can understand your, your, where you're coming from, but still, I think there's ways to, to go around that. Yeah, video is a good idea. Yeah, I do like to get the, as much of the metadata process done at the beginning. I'm similar to George, where I do love to go back and listen through all of the recordings, but I'm trying to get a as much of a wide perspective of the ecosystem as I can. Like, like you were saying, where I'm trying to, if I already have a bunch of down courses, I need night or wind or everything else that I can find in that environment. Yeah, but you're not rolling video all night, though. I mean, oh no, no, no. I don't do much video. I do some photography, but I mean, one of my primary memory techniques is just a lot of head slating and tail slating. Yeah. So I'll just jabber into my microphone for a good long while after I've recorded something just so that it's there, so that I don't have to do any additional work once it's done, so that it can sit on the shelf for a minute so I can come back to it and figure out what the heck I did. Video is something that I should do more. I just, I, I can't allocate the data in my mind yet. <laughs> but the times that I've done it, it really has been super <laughs> helpful, especially when I'm doing like, if I'm doing Foley recordings and that kind of stuff, having video really, really helps because then I don't have to slate anything. I can just see it. Absolutely. Sure. So, I mean, like my like default at my house right now is just open the garage door and stick mics out the garage and let the, right. let the garage kind of be that. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah. I've gotten good recordings when I used to live in a condo and there was like an overhang and that worked well. I saw Tim Preble did a thing kind of a while back where there was, I don't know, same thing, just like a roof, but like it was exposed out. And from those moments, yeah, way back, it's just like. If you don't have some sort of shelter over the over the mics, you're just never going to record anything. Um, right. So I love the idea of being out there in the open and building the shelter on top of it. I thought that was genius. So. Yeah, it's cool. genius, George. I'm 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 looking forward to building one of those. So. Thank you. Um, I look forward to hearing your your opinion once you start doing it because it 
it feels like you're actually doing something with your hands. It's not just pressing a button or and doing digital stuff. Yeah. So it also helps with getting immersed in the environment. I do think I would still prefer to use the actual low-lying deciduous foli- foliage if possible, but like I don't think that's always going to be possible, so I'm definitely going to build some structures. I basically was able to find some spots that functioned like I had built something. You've gotten some thunder too, haven't you, George? I have. Actually, I was exposed on the edge of a, of a huge crater in Gabon, and the best thunder happened while I was setting up the rig. Oh, I got some of it, but there was movement as well. Because you had that elephant thunder, right? The trumpeting with the thunder? Yeah. That was like the most badass thing I've ever heard. That like. That was crazy, that yeah. Stuff and, is uh, amazing. It was a bit dangerous. I think it was a bit too risky for what I was I was supposed to be doing there. Yeah. But again, you know, when you're exposed to it, it takes a whole different dimension. You just feel like you feel the power of nature, the, the wrath of it, and you have more respect for it afterwards. Yeah. The only way I was ever able to record really, really powerful close thunder in West Texas, the only way I could do it safely was having the mic kind of out under a covered porch and then I was um, inside the house and then I would learn it was really fun I would learn to judge the brightness of the strike so right if you got you get about five seconds per mile right and so I would learn to judge the brightness of the strike and ride the levels and so I could judge (laughs) whether or not it was going to be a distant strike and just a kind of subtle flash and then I'd adjust the gain so it wouldn't clip out or whether or not it was a really, really close, bright flash, and then I would just crank the gain all the way down and get away from the recorder and um, hope for the best, because sometimes when those strikes are within a quarter mile or so, there's nothing you can do. It's going to clip things out. And Now we got 32-bit float, though. Yeah, that's what I'm excited oh, that, about. that, The 32-bit, for sure, yeah. Oh, 32-bit. I yeah. just got the... I just got the... Because now I just recorded a big old thunderstorm last night with mine. Really? Oh, um, that's amazing. Yeah, I haven't I haven't dumped the files yet, but yeah, I got uh, I got the the sound devices, but um, so now you can just zoom? leave it. Yeah. Yeah, this is the F6, and I'm getting the mix pre from sound devices to test it soon. So I'll put. Oh them man, to, we got uh, we got to do an app. We got to do an episode. Okay. Wanna, yeah, we can do it. that. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really curious about it too. I I'm I will try some engines and hopefully some other more loud sources in the near future. The thing that I've been trying to test with the whole 32-bit floating workflow is the the concept of HDR. You know, it's like an HDR photography, you do multiple exposures, right? And then you overlay them on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And you can yep. see all the detail in the blacks, but you can still also see all the detail in the whites and you still get all the mid-range. And so my initial thought was, cool, I've got 32-bit float, so I can record something super, super transient and dynamic and get the clean transient, but then also pull the tail all the way, way up, super high gain. I mean, I could sausage something out without using any compression at all, hmm. right? Right. What ended up happening in practice was I started just doing it in RX using clip gain because when you when you modify the clip gain in RX, you can see the waveform shift. Mm. Um, right, yeah. So I did some knife shings. They were just clipping like crazy, right? But it was fine, right? Because what I did was I even brought it up even hotter and then I just kind of dumped transient back down and my overall waveform ended up you know, being kind of bricked, right? But it sounded just... 
Really? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, doesn't it sound a bit artificial when you like when you get mm-mm, the, mm-mm. the the tail? Okay. No, the biggest good. problem with the tail is the noise, right? Because at that point, I've got yeah. the, I've got the all of the noise comes with it, right? When it comes up, so that's the biggest problem to overcome. But as far as like just carving the dynamics, no, it sounds. It's, I mean, if you do it like how you want it to sound, like it sounds. I mean, pretty amazing. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I've been I've been having a blast with that. Yeah, I'm I can ex- imagine. I'm excited to be able to get these rain recordings and also be able to get a, a thunderstorm because half the time it'll there's no way to set set the level where it wouldn't wouldn't clip out sometimes but being able to leave it with 32 bit and get the whole entire storm that's going to be amazing so yeah it seems like i mean what you could do potentially in a situation like that what i might do with the recordings that i made is you know you take this stuff and you you take all the big thunder hits and you put them over here at this gain stage and then you take all the rest of the rain that's sitting underneath and you can just crank it all up as much as you want See, to me, like the big advantage is not the obvious, you're not going to clip stuff. It is the fact that your lower bound limitation is just where your mics can do. Because you can just bring all of it all the way up and you don't lose anything from down there in the floor, which to me, that's the, um, that's the thing that I'm really excited about. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Very good point. So I'd be remiss if before we wrapped up, we didn't talk about some volcanoes. <laughs> yeah, they go well with the rain, don't they? So George's latest library is an awfully dangerous one. So can you just kind of give us the, uh, the capsule of what that particular library is? Well, that's a collection of mostly gases and a bit of lava and bombs just happening Erta Ale volcano in Ethiopia. That's going up a volcano and sleeping at the base of a volcano and experiencing was on my list for a long time, mainly for the experience. And I wasn't expecting there to be a lot of sound, but there was, surprisingly. And when we got there... You could hear some of it, but it most since it's like there's like straight edges, straight walls to it, the sound mostly goes up and you don't really hear it. And our guide who was there with us, he had been there maybe a hundred times. And the moment that I put my blimp over the edge and I gave him the headphones to listen, he almost started crying because it was such a, he'd never actually listened to the volcano after being there a hundred times or more. It's a really powerful experience. Being there, it's quite precarious as well. You see bits falling all the time in there. You can hear the crackles in there. You can sometimes feel the lava that you're on move. And it's all really, I mean, you can break through and you can hurt your legs as one of our, of our porters did. So it all adds to, this, to the sense of being exposed and being at the mercy of nature. And when I actually listen to it, you can feel the how beautiful it is. It's incredible, yeah. It's, a, it's an experience that, I don't know, it's difficult to explain, and you have to actually go there and feel it for yourself. But you can, you know, get somewhat there by listening to the recordings I made. It's such a unique sound, because it's not sizzling, and it's not fire. It's its, its own thing. Not at all. And it, it's just pure, like, I don't know, energy. So the first thing I did was put the blimp over the edge and just listen there. I didn't press record, maybe for half an hour. And... I'm not sure. So this has been a documented phenomenon where if you listen to something that's relatively monotonous over a while, you can start hearing voices in there. You can start hearing random things, you know. So I started hearing people yelling and crying after a while. 
and I thought I was maybe the maybe the fumes, the gases or something. But I was clear, everything was clear. I just took my headphones off and everything was normal. So there's a lot you can see in this, but it's beautiful, as you said. And it's nothing like you would expect, like boiling things or uh, really cliche things that you might think of when you picture lava in your, hand, in your head or a volcano. It's really something in its own class. And it's, I'm really happy to, I'm, I was privileged to be there to record it. Yeah, it's funny, in its natural state, it just sounds so heavily designed. You know? It does indeed, absolutely, yeah, and the timing is really good as well. I mean, there's a, a good bit of everything. It's a bit of a like a low frequency energy. Then there's the occasional whooshes of the the bombs being exploding from the lava pits. There's the gases, like sort of a underscore to it. It's beautiful. It's like a symphony. You guys are both true artists, and it's a great privilege to have you both on and talking about this. Recording rain and, and just recording out of the elements. It's not for the faint of heart. It requires a lot of investment, both in kit, but also just in aesthetic and in time and in recon. And, and you two are both at the height of it. And I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for the kind words. It's been a pleasure to be back here. Coronado and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or BH or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 